0: How good is good enough? That's a pretty important question to ask in life. Uh, How good is good enough? So some of you guys, as you're doing the HSC or about to do the HSC, you'll find yourself asking the question, how good is good enough? Now, if you want to be like a doctor or something hectic like that, good enough is going to be a pretty high mark. Uh, If you want to be like a PE teacher or something like that, maybe it's a different story. (laughs) Sam's calling me nasty. Yeah, I I, I picked a soft target there. Um, the good news is, with this question, right? When you get to uni, how good is good enough? The game kind of changes. Fifty-one percent is a pass, which means it's good enough, and so that's really good. But how good is good enough is a bigger question than that, because you might want to ask that question um, about like like how good is good enough if I want that girl over there to notice me, you know, all that kind of stuff, or. How good is good enough if I want to try and go surfing in the last few weeks? Because the ocean has been insane and I would probably die if I tried to go surfing in the last few weeks. How good is good enough if I want my dodgy car to pass Rego this year? All these questions are worthwhile questions to ask. What about God, though? How good is good enough for God? How good is good enough to get eternal life from God? That's the question that the guy in that passage comes to Jesus with. In verse 25, it says that he's an expert in in the law, in the Bible, and he stands up and and he wants to test Jesus and he says, Jesus, what have I got to do to inherit eternal life? Now, as we press into this passage tonight and figure this thing out, we're actually going to see that he's asking the wrong question in the first place. But it's an important question. It's a question that matters that we have to get our heads around if we want to understand our own situation clearly and if we want to know how we can be right with God. We've got to answer this question. How good is good enough? I'm going to pray that we'd, we'd figure this out really clearly tonight. Let's pray now. Father, I pray that as we dig into your word tonight, Lord, that you would make abundantly clear how good is good enough for you. Father, I pray that you might even wound us with your word tonight. Help us to understand our situation clearly so that we can get Jesus and find salvation there. Amen. All right, now the first big thing that this passage shows us about how good is good enough is this. God requires perfect love of himself and of others. You can see that in verses twenty five to twenty eight. This guy comes to Jesus, he's got a question, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, Well you're an expert, you know the Bible, you tell me. What do you reckon? Now, that's a classic move that your G-team leaders would have learnt from Jesus, I reckon. So when you ask them a question in in Bible study and they say, well, what does everyone reckon? What does the Bible say? They're just pulling a Jesus on you. That's what's going on there. So Jesus does that. He pulls a Jesus. It's his move. He says, what do you reckon? You're an expert. And here's what the guy says in verse 27. Jesus throws it back on him and he answered, "'Love the Lord your God with all your heart "'and with all your soul and with all your strength.'" and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus goes, yeah, that's right. You've answered correctly, so off you go. Go do that. Now, we need to drill into that verse there, verse 27, for a second. Jesus, Sorry, the guy answering Jesus says two things. He says, you're supposed to love God, and you're supposed to love your neighbor. You're supposed to love other people. Everything that God commands of people in the Bible pretty much comes back to those two things. And so what do they mean? First of all, love God. He says love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, everything you've got. Love God. And so what that means is you're just loving God with every possible ounce of everything you've got. It's going to shape your entire life. Loving God like this will come out in the fact that you'll actually obey God in everything in life. Every time, instead of obeying God, every time we choose to sin, that's us choosing to love sin more than we love God. And so this idea of loving God, man, it filters through everything. We're meant to love God with everything. We're meant to have a perfect love for God that leads to a perfect obedience of Him as we choose to follow Him in every single situation and decision that comes our way. Love God. It's a big call. Secondly, he says, love your neighbor, just like you would want to be loved, love your neighbor. See, we're pretty good at loving ourselves, aren't we? We're pretty good at it. We're we're really good at it. We we defend ourselves, we care for ourselves, we provide for ourselves. I don't reckon there's anyone in the world who will love you and treat you better than you do. Everything you do is for yourself. We're really good at loving ourselves. The command here is to love others the way you love yourself. That's a big call. Can you guys, just as we begin to scratch the surface of this, can you guys see how cripplingly high this standard is? To love God with everything you got and to love others the way you love yourself. That's a a big call. It's such a big call that in verse 29, it says that this guy talking to Jesus, he tries to justify himself. He's trying to weasel out of and wriggle out of what the Bible says. And so he says to Jesus, oh, okay, that sounds good, but well, who's my neighbor? I mean, seriously, it's not everyone. I can't be loving everyone like this. Who's my neighbor, Jesus? Now, Before we go on to answer that question, because it's an important question to ask, who is my neighbour? I want us to stop and just kind of apply what's going on here immediately to us. See, first of all, I reckon it's worth recognising that when we're confronted with God's standards for us, when we see what God asks of us, there's a few mistakes that I reckon all of us are prone to making. The first mistake is to trick ourselves to convince ourselves that actually we're doing pretty good, that actually I do all of that. (laughs) Love God with everything you've got. This guy in the passage doesn't have any problem with that. I reckon he's kidding himself, going, yeah, I'm pretty good. I I love God with my heart, my mind, my soul, my strength, everything. I'm all over that. I reckon to think like that, you actually have to be lying to yourself. Number two, the second mistake we can make is that we actually try and move the goals We kind of move what we're aiming for, move what God's asked of us so that we don't look so bad. So God says to us, don't have sex outside of marriage. And we go, okay, I'm pretty sure what God meant was don't have sex with someone unless you really, really love them. Or God says, obey the laws of the country that you live in, all of them. And we say, yeah, we should obey the government in like the important stuff. So I'm not going to murder or like do armed robbery, but like everyone's got an iPod full of stolen music. Pretty, pretty sure that's okay, isn't it? Everyone, if they drive, they drive, you know, 65 in a 60 zone, especially if there's roadworks there. I mean, who wouldn't do that? And, and what we do is we actually chip away at what God has said and we move the goal. And so in the end, we end up feeling better about ourselves than we should, but we're going by a different standard than the one that God has actually laid out. So don't make those mistakes when you hear God's word. The only right response to being confronted to the standards that God lays out here, the only right response (coughs) is to see what you've done, admit your failure, and just own it. Take it like a man or a woman, because both genders are good at taking stuff, all right? Just take it like a man or a woman. See what God says... And confess and just go, God, you're right. I'm sorry. I don't live up to this standard. I'm a failure. I'm stuffed. I need forgiveness. Take it like a man or a woman when you see God's standards clearly. Now, remember, back in this passage, this guy's trying to weasel out of what God said. He's trying to make himself feel good and and kind of move the standard. And so he says to Jesus, well, who actually is my neighbor, Jesus? Who's my neighbor? And so what does Jesus do? He tells a story, a pretty popular one that you guys will know, the Good Samaritan. And here's what this story is about. Here's the second point that this passage wants us to understand tonight. Here it is. God requires us to be a neighbor to love everyone. It's what the Good Samaritan's about. Now, that story, who's heard this story some other time in their life, maybe in Sunday school or something like that? A whole bunch of you guys. I heard this story in Sunday school as well. But as I've been looking at it this week... It's a pretty crazy story. Like, I can't believe I was hearing in Sunday school about a dude who gets beat up, so he's like unconscious on the side of the road, and then like they take his clothes. That's a crazy story, right? But that's what happens in this. Check it out. Check out the start of what happens to this guy in verse 30. And I reckon, as we, as we work our way through this story, a helpful way to catch the full weight of, of the incredible love that's shown to this guy is if you put yourself in his shoes for a second and imagine what this would be like. So, verse 30. In reply to the guy's question, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hand of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So just imagine, you've just had that happen to you. You're like naked, half dead, lying in the middle of the bush, in the middle of nowhere, in between two towns. Just lying there. It would be pretty bad. You don't even have clothes, so as people walk by, they wouldn't know whether you were a Jew or a Roman, a rich guy, a poor person, you could be a crazy person, you just thought he'd take off, you know, you're just lying there, just naked lying in the bush all beat up. And then as you're lying there, imagine you see someone coming down the road and you go, yeah, someone's going to help me. And you see, and they're dressed as a priest, and you go, sweet, he's a priest, he's one of the good guys, surely he's going to help me out. As he gets closer though, he crosses to the other side of the road and walks past you. Devastated. And then as you're lying there, another guy comes along. This guy is dressed up like a Levite. Now, Levite are also one of the good guys. They're from like a long line of religious people, from a priestly line in, in, among the Jews. And so you see this guy coming and going, yes, he's going to help me out. And you can't even talk because you're so beat up. Crosses the road, walks on by. And you're like, man, I've got no hope. I'm stuffed. And then another guy comes along. But this guys you can tell by his clothes, he's a Samaritan. Now, if you don't know what a Samaritan is, um, the the Jews who Jesus is talking to in this story, they hate the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hate them. Basically, the Samaritans were thought of as like half-caste Jews, right? So they used to be Jews, and they married all these other people, and they lost their identity as Jews. They're like mudbloods in Harry Potter. Does that make sense? Does that connect with you? All right. So you've got this mud blood coming down the road. And you're like, man, if the Levite and the priest didn't help me, there's no way this guy's going to. But he does. And he comes over and he puts his hand on your shoulder and he, and he rolls you over and he says, are you okay? And you're like, I can't believe this guy stopped for me. And, and then he, like, puts oil on your wounds, which helps him out, and bandages them up. And you're going, man, I'm, I can't believe I'm getting help. This is so good. But then you kind of take stock of your situation and you go, well... At least I'm bandaged up, but I can't even walk out of this place. How am I going to get out of here? And so then this guy, this stranger, puts you on his donkey and he walks while you ride his donkey out of the bush. And you go, "On this is good. I'm safe. So thankful. But then it dawns on you that, man, you've got nothing. You don't have clothes. You don't have money. How are you going to fend for yourself tonight? And so then this stranger, he takes you to an inn. And he pays the guy. He pays for everything and he spends the night in the inn looking after you because you're so beat up. It's amazing. And, and things are looking pretty good at this point until you realise the next morning that this guy's got to keep going and what are you going to do now? You've, you still haven't got a dollar to your name. You can't even walk. You're going to get chucked out of the inn and you're going to end up like begging or something. And so this complete stranger, it says in the story gets out two silver coins, and he pays for what is worth. Like two silver coins is enough to pay for like two months board in this inn. So this complete stranger pays for two months of accommodation for this guy to sit there and heal up. And he even leaves it open-ended. He says to the innkeeper, if there's any other costs, I'll come back later and pay you more. Just make sure you look after this guy until he gets well. That is staggering love, isn't it? It's meant to blow us away. You're meant to hear that story and go, wow, this guy has done everything. He's shown so much compassion to this man that he doesn't even know. It's huge. Now, coming back out of the story, remember the original question was Jesus, who's my neighbor? He's trying to wriggle out of what God says. And so Jesus tells him that story. And then here's how Jesus applies it to the man who asks the question. Look at verse 36. After saying all of that, he says, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. He can't even call him, he doesn't say the Samaritan. He can't even say his name. He says the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, "Go and do likewise see Jesus isn't interested in playing this guy's game he isn't interested in playing who's my neighbor and who's not he almost his answer actually assumes that everyone's your neighbor because the Samaritan was a neighbor to this random Jewish guy Jesus isn't worried about that everyone's your neighbor his concern is that this guy goes and and bes a neighbor he says to this guy Go and love like this. Be a good neighbor to everyone. And so, back to our question how good is good enough? Well, according to the standard that Jesus has just laid out, to begin with, just to start with, it's perfect love for God and it's perfect love for everyone else. Love that is sacrificial and costly and overwhelmingly generous. That's what God asks of us. You ever have that feeling of just being completely inadequate when you see the standard that's been asked of you in something? I got this feeling at the end of last year when I had to sit um, a Greek exam that I'm studying at Bible college. I need to learn another language, right? And and leading up to this exam, I was like, I better find out what this exam is going to be like. So I looked at some past papers for what I was going to be doing in two weeks' time. And I didn't understand a thing on this paper. Like, I'm looking at it, and the paper says things like, um, conjugate the aorist passive of these infinite verbs, or something like that, right? And I'm looking at it going, what the heck does conjugate mean? What's an aorist passive mean? Which ones are the infinite ones? And I didn't have a clue even how to understand the questions like they were using words to define words in sentences that didn't make sense to ask me a question that I didn't understand and I was going to be sitting this exam like I was in big trouble and I felt just stuffed that's the feeling we're meant to be getting as we understand the proper weight of God's commands to us here we are completely inadequate Jesus shows us that we are not good enough. Guys, I fail at what Jesus is saying here daily, sometimes hourly. I'm not good enough. And, guys, if you're honest with yourselves, I reckon you'll realize that you're not either. And so, what are we supposed to do with this nice Sunday school, the good Sunday school story, the Good Samaritan? What do we do with this thing? Well, here's the last thing I want us to see from the Bible tonight. What is impossible for us is possible for God. See, this isn't the first time... So, this isn't the only time that someone's come up to Jesus and asked the question, what have I got to do to inherit... <laughs> oh, hectic. Touch my nose and everything gets loud. What have I got to do to inherit eternal life? This isn't the first time it's happened. Open up your Bibles. You're in chapter 10 here. But flick over a few pages to chapter 18, verse 18. It's the exact same thing happens again here. This time, the guy who comes to Jesus, he's a rich guy. He's like a ruler. He's got lots of money, and he thinks he's a pretty good guy. Um, And in verse 18, he says to him, what have I got to do to inherit eternal life? See it in verse 18? The exact same question. And Jesus says in verse 20, well, you know the rules, all the regular stuff. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, obey your parents. And the rich guy says, yeah, I do all that. I've done that since I was a little kid, which is a big call. I don't know what's going on for this guy. But in classic Jesus style, Jesus goes straight for this guy's weak spot. Check out verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. So this guy here, he gets completely owned by Jesus' standards, again, just like the parable of the Good Samaritan does for us. And then the people who are listening to all this as it happens and they see this guy being talked to, in verse 26, they ask the question that I bet we're all asking right now. Check out verse 26. Lost my page. Who's got verse 26? Someone read out verse 26. You got it? Be brave. Say it. Yeah. Jesus, if that's your standard, then who can be saved? It's ridiculous. Who can do it? And then in verse 27, Jesus gives the answer that we need. He says, what is impossible with man is possible... With God. What we can't do, God can do. It's not going to come from us. It's not going to come from the things we do. It's not going to come from our own effort and our kind of sheer determination to just be as good as we can until God accepts us. No, no. It must come from God. And in the next couple of verses, Jesus tells his disciples exactly what it is that God does to make it possible. Look at verse 31. Jesus took the 12 aside. So they've just had this conversation. He pulls them aside and he told them, we're going up to Jerusalem. This is the same journey that Jesus has already started. We're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the son of man, which is him, will be fulfilled. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, insult him spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. This is talking about Jesus' death. It's talking about the way Jesus goes to the cross and dies a painful death to save sinners. The Bible is saying that Jesus goes to the cross and he actually faces God's anger at our sin. He faces God's anger at all the ways which we've failed to love the way we should. And so Jesus is actually condemned on the cross by God as one who hasn't loved God properly and he hasn't loved everyone else properly. Even though he has done that, he gets treated as if he's the one who's failed to love so that us, the sinners, the ones who don't do it right, can be forgiven because Jesus takes our place. Now, I've used this illustration before. I'm sorry if you've heard it, but that's all right. I like the movie. It's like that classic scene, right, in the Hunger Games. Each year, these evil dictators come along, and, and they choose one person from every district who has to go fight in this terrible fight to the death in the crazy arena thing that they've got. And then in the movie, um, the, guy, the chick comes along, and she pulls a name out, and she's like, Primrose Everdeen, and, and, that's, and that's Katniss's little sister. And Katniss is like, no. And so she steps forward, and what does she say? I volunteer as tribute. That's right. That's very good. Yeah, she steps up and she says, no, no, I'll go instead. Let my sister go. I'll step up. And she takes her little sister's place and fights in the Hunger Games. Guys, if we put our trust in Jesus, he literally steps up, takes our place and dies on the cross for us so that we don't have to face God's anger at our sin. This guy who came to Jesus back in, in Luke chapter 10, this guy came to Jesus with the wrong question. The parable of the Good Samaritan is not meant to be like a handbook telling us how to do all the right things so we can earn our way to heaven. It's not about that. It's about showing us how far short we are of God's standards. It exposes our problem. And so what do we do with it? (laughs) Well, first of all, guys, the first thing, the most important thing is we've got to learn the lesson it's teaching us. You will not meet God's standard. You need a savior. And he's not some guy who comes along and just helps us to be good enough and so we're saved. No, no, no. He does it on our behalf and dies in our place facing God's judgment instead of us. And so, guys, first of all, don't trick yourself. Don't tell yourself that you're better than you are. Secondly, guys, don't move the goal. Don't pretend that God isn't asking all that of you and actually you're doing all right. Hear Jesus' words tonight and let them crush any thought that you might be able to save yourself. And once you've understood your position properly, be driven to Jesus because he offers to save you for free so, guys, if you are a Christian who's already got your trust in Jesus, never stop trusting Jesus. Guys, if you knew, and, and this is the first time you've ever heard this stuff tonight, I really got one question for you. What would stop you from becoming a Christian? What would stop you from putting your trust in Jesus to save you? Because if, this, if Jesus is right, you will not be saved any other way unless you put your trust in Jesus. So what's stopping you? I encourage you to become a Christian tonight. Tell God you want to trust Jesus, ask him to save you. Secondly, though, guys, as people who are saved by grace, if that's who you are, seek to love the way Jesus has commanded us here. See, I don't want us to hear the main point of this, that we're not going to live up to these standards and go, phew. That's good, because I was a long way from it. I'm so glad I don't have to worry about that anymore. Thanks, Jesus. See you later. No, no. Jesus is still teaching people how he wants them to live. Although they're not living this way to save themselves, this is what Jesus genuinely wants of people who want to follow him. There's going to be failures. There's going to be disappointments. You're going to stuff up probably daily. But this is what Jesus asks of you if you're one of his followers. So let's talk about three ways that this is probably going to bite for us as a youth group. Number one, love like this at school. Let's face it, if there's anywhere you're going to encounter people that are hard to love, it's probably school, isn't it? There's a few jerks at school. Um, And what I want to say, guys, is don't fall into the trap of, of being at school and going, these are my friends, these are the people that are nice to me, and I'm going to do a real good job of loving them. But there's these other people, these people who aren't very nice to me, these people who are mean, these people who don't even like me, and I'm going to hate them. Or even I'm just going to be neutral. Sure, I don't love them, but I don't hate them, but just kind of neutral. No, no. Love everyone at school, even the people who are genuinely hard to love. It's a challenge, isn't it? Love them in the things that you do to them, Love them in the things that you say to them. Love them in the things that you say about them when they're not listening. Even love them in the things that you think about them. It's a big call, isn't it? You can see why we need Jesus. Secondly, love like this at youth group. Once again, at at youth, it's pretty easy to love and care for our close friends here. That's not too hard. If you've got good friends here, that's probably a thing that you love to do. You enjoy hanging out with your friends. Now, I reckon for most people, as I come and join in here at EV Youth, they do find a community, I hope, that's a pretty loving community. But I also know that there's people who actually find it pretty hard to settle in here and fit in here. It's not as easy for them for whatever reason, probably just because they're new more than anything. And guys, what I want to ask you is, what would it look like if you were to love sacrificially everyone at Youth? even the people who you don't know yet. How would you use your time on a Friday night if you wanted to be other people-centred and love others at youth? Thirdly, love like this at home, in your house, with your family. I reckon who you are at home is who you really are. I reckon the way we are at home, that's when we let it all hang out. That's who we are. And so if you're you're looking for like a girl or a guy and you're like, I wonder if she's a good person to go out with or whatever, or or he, if you're reversing your head or whatever, what are they like at home? What are they like to their parents? Because that's who we really are. That's what we're really like. And so guys, pay attention. (laughs) That was just a side note. Forget dating, right? It was just a, a helpful little tip that I figured out along the years. But anyway, here's the point. Guys, pay attention. Pay attention to how you love at home. When your brothers and sisters treat you like dirt and do heaps of annoying stuff, persist in loving them like Jesus commands us here. It's a funny thing that we need to be reminded to love our families, isn't it? That's pretty weird. Like you'd think that would be the one that would come naturally. But I reckon particularly for teenagers your age, this is something we can completely neglect. Love your parents in the way you obey them. Love your parents by showing them that you love them. Speak to them. Do things that show them you actually care about them. I reckon it's very easy for people your age, right, to be all about your friendships, your mates, youth group, church, whatever else is going on in your life, and be all about your social life outside of your family and completely forget your family. I reckon I did this when I was a teenager heaps. Don't become like a ghost in your own home who just ignores your parents. Love your parents at home as well. Love your family. Love like Jesus commands us to at home, at school, at youth. I'm going to pray. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, as we look at your word tonight, it is so clear that without Jesus we are completely lost. And Lord, we want to take a moment now just to confess in our own heads all the different ways that we failed to love the way you would have us love. Jesus, thank you that we have forgiveness for all those times that we've done that. And Lord, I pray that we'd seek to change and grow and love as you've commanded us to. Amen.